Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has dominated global and U.S. news this past week. We've got more on that later in the show. But right now, we focus on a historic moment for the Supreme Court. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. That's the voice of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Last Friday, President Biden nominated Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court to replace retiring U.S. Justice Stephen Breyer. Jackson currently serves as a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And if she is approved by the Senate, she would become the first ever black woman justice on the court. I sat down with Our Body Politic contributor Tiffany Jeffers, associate professor of law at Georgetown University, to discuss the nomination. So why do you think President Biden might have picked Ketanji Brown-Jackson as his nominee? Farai, she is so qualified for this position, and I am, I'm beaming right now. I'm so excited about this nomination. Judge Jackson has both the qualifications that we would see typically in a justice, meaning the elite education, the Ivy League education, but also this really new perspective of having served as a federal public defender, having served on the Sentencing Commission, and most importantly, uh, of living as a Black woman for her entire life. It's just going to bring a perspective to the court that is new and fresh and needed. And I think another thing is that she's already been through the confirmation process with this particular Senate. Yeah. Want to follow up on the way that all of this played out, uh, which was that there were a number of contenders, even once President Biden had said, I am specifically going to choose a Black woman. Let's listen to Democratic Congressman and House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn voicing his support for Judge Jackson. Let's have a debate. Let's talk to her uh, about her rulings and about her philosophy. But in the final analysis, let's have a strong bipartisan support to demonstrate that both parties are still in pursuit of perfection. And Representative Clyburn had originally championed J. Michelle Childs of the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina and now strongly backing this nomination. And so how do you think the the political stakes are playing out? For I... What Representative Clyburn was saying to his colleagues in that clip was, let's be fair, right? Let's take a look at the record. Let's not put so much stock into any one particular person's background and let's not challenge someone's upbringing. Let's talk about their work as a judge. Let's talk about their work as a lawyer and then make a decision. Because if we do that, there can be no question that Judge Jackson is qualified for this position. She served for a time at the trial level courts, meaning she was a district court judge before recently being appointed to the D.C. Circuit. As a district court judge, she had over 500 rulings. Anytime parties go to the circuit courts, they're appealing what happened in the district court. Out of the rulings that Judge Jackson issued, 
only 11 have been overturned by the Court of Appeals. That's less than 2% of her entire judicial rulings. And that's pretty significant because if we're focused on what the job is, the job is to follow precedent, apply the law to a situation, apply the law to facts and make a decision. If she's doing that well and not being overturned by a higher court, then that speaks to her capabilities to do the work. Right. We also have heard from some Republicans on the nomination, including U.S. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, who said this to CNN on Tuesday. Yeah, I'm going to take a, a very deep dive and have the occasion to speak with her uh, about some of the concerns uh, when she was before the Senate to go onto the circuit court. Uh, look, her her nomination and her confirmation uh, uh, would or will be um, historic. Uh, and, uh, and like anyone nominated by the president of the United States, she deserves a very careful look, a very deep dive, and I'll provide fresh eyes to that evaluation uh, and hope that I'll be able to support her in the final analysis. And thinking about the last Supreme Court nomination, it took Amy Coney Barrett, the now justice who replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just 30 days from her presidential nomination to get a vote. And that was one of the fastest nomination processes in the history of the court. So, You know, just speaking realistically, um, can we expect something with that level of expeditiousness or are you looking to something more contentious, Tiffany? I think Farai, it's going to fall somewhere in the middle. I don't think that she'll have the expediency that Justice Barrett was fortunate to have because I'm going to say the quiet part out loud, Black women are going to be held to a higher standard. But I do think she'll have a fair hearing. She'll have to answer tough questions, but I don't think it'll be contentious in a way that's nasty. Tell us a little bit more about how you think Judge Jackson will fit on the court and what kind of cases she will be looking at. So if Judge Jackson is confirmed, there's still a super conservative majority on the court. I do think it's important to recognize that The Supreme Court justices are colleagues that respect each other significantly. And when we listen to oral arguments, what we're hearing is a conversation between colleagues. They're working to persuade each other that their understanding and interpretation of what's being argued of the law is correct. And so while I don't think that ideologically it's going to shift the court, I do think that if she's confirmed, uh, a Justice Jackson would have the respect of her colleagues on the court and that they would take her unique experience into consideration, both of how police interact with citizens, with individuals, and with her experience as a Black woman, because the law doesn't impact everyone in this country the same way. We saw in some of the abortion access cases, Justice Barrett asking questions and making some statements through her experience as a mother, which is um, she's the only mother, the only person that's had children on the court at this time. So pundits were saying how powerful that was possibly to her colleagues and that they were looking to her for maybe guidance about that particular role. What do we know about her as a person? I've been fascinated, for example, reading articles about Black women who she went to college and law school with who that helped her sustain her drive for excellence. Farai, this is so interesting thinking about the humanity and the personhood of justices and judges and people that impact law and society. Judge Jackson is a person. She's a woman. 
She's married. She is a friend, a daughter. Uh, her parents were educators. Her father went on to become a lawyer, going to night school um, to study law. She has a background where several people in her family were law enforcement. And so she's this well-rounded human. This is really important to consider because Republicans have been able to frame particularly Black people through one solitary lens of just being progressive, anti-police, anti-religion, anti-establishment. That's not true. We exist in an intersection of identities. You have Black people who are deeply uh, Pentecostal or evangelical who also fight for LGBTQ plus persons who also support police officers, who also want some kind of reform and change in law enforcement, right? Yeah. Tiffany, you are a former prosecutor and Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson is a former defender. That role is less common as one that gets advanced to the Supreme Court. Can you tell us a little bit more about how people with different legal backgrounds might fit into the highest court in the land? Less common is an understatement, honestly. There's never been a public defender on the Supreme Court of the United States. So this is going to be historic and really huge. Having a different practice experience actually does matter for lawyers. Prosecutors, all of their work is done through the lens of police. They're state actors. We never really get the experience of the interaction with the accused. So we don't, prosecutors don't hear stories of police abuse, police harassment, don't hear how the intersection of health disparity and poverty and education issues and mental health issues impact criminal activity and impact decisions of the accused. There's something about speaking directly to the person accused with a crime, charged with a crime, that changes your experience. It gives you a level of empathy that's really unmatched in the practice of law. I want to end by asking about a sort of intergenerational legacy of Black women in the judiciary. So in her remarks, Judge Jackson paid homage to the Honorable Constance Baker Motley, the first Black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge. Judge Motley's life and career has been a true inspiration to me as I have pursued this professional path. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. How should we view Judge Jackson's legacy as well as, you know, Constance Baker Motley? Ooh, for I, I, I started tearing up just listening to that clip. This is so important. Seeing is believing, for I. And even outside of any opinion that she may write, any ruling that she may make, seeing her elevated on that bench, actually raised up, will show little Black kids that nothing is unattainable. Mm. It, it just is so inspirational and so compelling for us to keep going in times of discouragement. I, I cannot express enough how impactful this appointment will be. 
Well, Tiffany, it is really wonderful to talk to you, and we thank you for bringing your legal expertise and your historical expertise to our show. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks, Farai. That's our Body Politic contributor, Tiffany Jeffers, Associate Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Coming up next... It's one of the reasons I do what I do. We have to let people understand, no matter who they are, you have a responsibility to be informed about the world. Because as you said, what happens in the world is going to come back and affect you. CNN's Marcus Mabry on how to connect domestic audiences to global news, plus highlights from the State of the Union and CPAC. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. As the attacks on the Ukraine continue, it's up to journalists to figure out how to tell the story of the world to domestic audiences. That is something that Marcus Mabry does on a daily basis as Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Global Programming for CNN Digital Worldwide. He's been covering international relations for decades, both in the U.S. and abroad, and innovating all along the way. He's also the author of Twice as Good, Condoleezza Rice and Her Path to Power, and the memoir White Bucks and Black-Eyed Peas, about coming-of-age Black and poor and gifted in America. I talked to him about how to produce global news for U.S. audiences, plus Marcus's path through the world as a journalist, a champion of education for low-income kids, and as a father. I I do feel very blessed and very privileged to have this career, right? To get to do what we get to do at CNN and across the news media every day, trying to explain the world to the world is a massive privilege and responsibility, uh, not one I take lightly. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with how I grew up, right? I, I'm, I'm not to the men are born. I am a, you know, someone born poor, uh, black, uh, and LGBTQ to a single mom in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, so nothing about my origin suggests that I could be at, you know, the pinnacle of journalism, sitting at that table at CNN every morning, uh, where we talk about what should be the top stories of the day uh, for the world and how they should be framed. And my team does that for, you know, hundreds of millions of people mm. online. As someone who grew up in an American city in the Northeast with, you know, issues that you wrote about in your first book, in your memoir, um, that demanded that you had to make decisions as a relatively young person about how to lead your life and how to succeed, ending up going to an elite school, Lawrenceville. A lot of us don't necessarily feel connected to the larger struggles when we have individual struggles. So what do you think it was about you that made you understand that despite the fact that you had individual journeys through American life and race, you know, class, educational privilege, all these things that you also needed to have a global lens? Uh, That's a great question. I I really feel like um, my journey from the periphery of American society in in many measures to the center, right, Uh, when it comes to these kind of institutions of journalistic influence, um, were really related. Because being a a poor Black kid, at that point at Lawrenceville, it was very much a a rich white school. The majority was white. uh, Something like 4% of the student body was African-American. I was very used as a Black boy in a very white environment as a poor kid in a very rich environment, I was very used to translating people to people, Mm. helping white people understand black folks, helping black folks understand white folks. 
That was something I did every day of my life, right? As I made this journey between these, these different universes, rich and elite and white and poor and black. Um, and so I, I actually enjoyed that role of translator, of ambassador. And that was something you do very much in global affairs every day as you try to explain to different parts of the world, because we, you know, our audience is global at CNN, as you try to explain different parts of the world how to understand parts of the world that they are not used to. And so that is very, very analogous to me uh, and, and, and very easy. Uh, the other reason is because I just had an interest in things global. I don't know mm. why per se, but in third grade, we were asked to write uh, reports uh, on on a foreign country, and I, I wrote mine about France. Um, again, we were poor, right? So at my grandmom's house, when we lived with my grandmom, um, we had encyclopedias that were literally like one year younger than me. So I was born in 67. <laughs> These are like encyclopedias from 1968. And this right. was already probably 19, what? I don't know, third grade, 1978, six or something. Uh, 77, I don't know. So I wrote my France um, France report uh, based on those encyclopedias. And I had, you know, when I was able to take French in public school and then at Lawrenceville and then at university, uh, I studied French. I, you know, I speak French fluently. I studied uh, in Sciences Po in Paris and La Sorbonne. And so it, it, I was attracted to this global, global ideal. It's also true that as African-Americans, right, uh, we often are. So, you know, I, I just followed in the path of James Baldwin and Josephine Baker mm. before me, mm-hmm. who, who found a certain liberation in, in this case, and in France in particular, uh, the one confined in many different cultures. And, and it's always worth noting that there are other people of color who don't find liberation in France, especially North Africans or Beur. It's not a, a nirvana for everyone by far, but certainly for African-Americans, we often find a certain acceptance there that we don't always find at home. Yeah. And of course, as you know, I come from a global family, all of which is still to say that even for someone like me, I find it hard to cover global geopolitics for an American audience. How do you do it? What is it that you do as an SVP at CNN to make sure that we understand the global picture? Uh, you, you start from simplicity to begin with, because um, it, it, like many different uh, endeavors and many different um, arenas, uh, international affairs can be very jargony, very jargon heavy. Uh, and actually, right now, I'm actually working on a piece uh, on uh, realpolitik, um, which is very one of those jargon words. Those of us mm-hmm. who study international relations, we're like, oh, yeah, realpolitik, no problem. But but for normal people who are not us, it's like, well, what are you talking about? And it is this idea, for instance, the United States. You know, the United States wants to be an upholder of freedom, right? It, it, that is uh, part of uh, the United States' image in the world. It, it wants, to, it seeks to project. So, therefore, if Russia invades Ukraine, then we should stop that because that's a, an authoritarian state invading a democratic state. It is purely a play of might versus right. So if we're going to be on the side of right, then we should stop Russia from doing that, right? Well, yes, we should based on our idealism, our ideology. However, based on realism and realpolitik, a, a means versus a means ends analysis, calculus, it doesn't make sense to stop Putin from taking Ukraine if we think that the risk of doing that militarily would be to involve the United States and Russia in a direct military conflict that could right. escalate to God knows where. So Realpolitik says, is Ukraine in the vital interest of the United States? We'd like to say yes, but it, it is not from a rational point of view. So the, the, the Biden administration can't come out and say, well, we're not going to go to, we're not going to risk going to war with Russia in order to save Ukraine. They can't say that, but that is the realpolitik 
rationally based calculation they have made. But in order to bring, our, you know, again, our audience of hundreds of millions of people every month at CNN Digital, we want to reach all those people wherever they are on the scale of having knowledge and understanding of any of these issues, be it foreign affairs, be it U.S. politics, be it economics, right? We want to reach people where they are and make it engaging for them to come along the journey so you can help to inform them. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. We're talking with Marcus Mabry about how to tell international stories to audiences here in the U.S. Mabry is the Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Global Programming for CNN Digital. I want to bring up a little bit of something that we talked about on last week's show. We spoke with retired Major General Linda Singh of the Army National Guard, who was the head of the National Guard in Maryland, also served in Kosovo and Afghanistan. And she's very savvy about both U.S. Mm -hmm. you know, U.S. relations in terms of national security and geopolitics. And she said something about the conflict in Ukraine that stood out to me. This is going to be um, what I would consider to be potentially another world war. Um, because Russia is not going to stop or Putin's not going to stop, right? I'm not going to say Russia as a country. Putin is not going to stop until he reestablishes the old Soviet Union. That is my fear, and I think that that is going to cripple the overall society. That's going to cripple supply chain. That's going to cripple business. It's going to cripple humanity. Again, that's Dr. Linda Singh, and we paired her with Anne Simmons of the Moscow Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal. And when I heard that, it was incredibly bracing. And I think that there's always a question about like who you put on the air to make their case, whether or not it is absolutely going to unfold that way. I felt really strongly and I was grateful that Dr. Singh brought up these deep geopolitics. How do you decide who to put on your air as you're discussing potential war or or continued diplomacy and sanctions? It's a great question. Um, we we do have a, a whole cast um, of of military experts and of political experts. Um, we really aim to get you know um, that old journalism thing of of all sides of the story. Um, especially for a geopolitical story like this one. So we want to have on people who understand Putin and the mind of Putin um, and as much as that's possible. We also want to have people on who understand uh, the general European security situation, what, what are things about in NATO and in the EU. Uh, and then we want people who also understand U.S. politics and where this all plays into the demands uh, and the, the druthers and the fears uh, of the Biden administration and the GOP opposition. So so we want to kind of uh, round all those out to, to understand all the players that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, I sort of see this all as part of a whole, meaning geopolitics and U.S. politics, in part because my family has a lot of members of uh, the veteran community, people who served in Vietnam and who served in Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, uh you know, various parts of the world, Afghanistan, Iraq. And so to me, I always see the ways that geopolitics comes back and affects domestic politics. But I do really, I do really worry that most people just don't see a linkage. I don't, I don't know. Does that bother you or is that? 
Oh, yes. Yes. It bothers me a lot. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons I do what I do. Uh, and one of the reasons I, I push at CNN for us to have the most kind of user-friendly formulation and, and framing of stories and questions uh, that we possibly can, because we have to let people understand, no matter who they are, uh, if you are you know, are hearing what we're talking about today. You are in a privileged position and you have a responsibility to be informed about the world because it is going to, as you said, what happens in the world is going to come back and affect you. And, and it does. And we, and we say that all the time. I mean, one of the reasons that Donald Trump uh, was able to, to win the presidency uh, was because he appealed to people in those northern, um, you know, Rust Belt, for lack of a better term, as they say, mm. uh, states of you know Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, he he made inroads with those white voters in those places because they felt that globalization, uh, the economic you know empowerment and, and connection of all the different countries, had left them behind, and so they their their disgruntlement and then their fear, they uh, were very susceptible to the message message from Trump that globalization had the effect of changing who was the president of the United States, so it does come home. Yeah. So let's go a little bit deeper into you. I mean, you know, you and I both worked at Newsweek early in our careers, you know, yawn years ago when we were in our 20s and we're both now in our 50s. Um, I'm sorry yes, if I'm blowing are. up your spot. It's <laughs> we, we are very, we're half a century. And then yes, <laughs> we are half a century old. And, you know, I really am grateful to you because I've seen you navigate. You and I have taken different paths in journalism. I have been a bit more like, let me just try things that are independent. And you have stayed inside big institutions doing big things. Now, you also have been leveraging privilege for social good. So you are now a, a trustee of the Oliver Scholars Program. We talked a little bit about your history at Lawrenceville, but I was fascinated by the Oliver Scholars. Tell me what it's about. So Oliver Scholars um, has been around for decades, and we got and identify African-American and Latinx uh, students in New York City public schools who are bright and uh, gifted students academically. And we help them apply to independent schools for high school in New, in New York City and in boarding day schools in New York City and boarding schools throughout the Northeast. And then we help them to succeed at those day schools and boarding schools when they get there. And then we help to make sure they have successful careers afterwards at universities and beyond. So that's what Oliver Scholars are. Um, I've, I've been involved with Oliver for a long time because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from Trenton, so I didn't go through Oliver Scholars. We just deal with the five boroughs of New York City. Mm. But those kids are, Oliver Scholars are exactly me, right? Those are, I mean, exactly a poor kid, um, you know, uh, did well at school, uh, would not have had the same opportunities or even known about this, this, you know, private school world and the doors that Lawrenceville opened up for me. And it's important that everyone have access to that privilege that we can give access to. We, we're not changing just these students. We're also changing these schools. They are more diverse and more accepting and more aware. We're also changing the, the families and the communities that the Oliver Scholars come from. So they are seeds of change who come back to their communities and make a difference and show everyone wherever you came from, you can determine where you're going. And that's incredibly mm. powerful, especially if you come from like a lower income you know, place like I did, right? And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And also speaking of sense of self, you are a gay man with kids and a partner and you are living the American dream today. It might not have been the American dream not so long ago. How do you view 
yourself as a, maybe not a public figure, but as someone who's lived experience gets exposed to the world in different ways, including through, you know, being a dad. I think it's very important. I think visibility is very important. Uh, I think when we were growing up, it was, you know, you, you didn't see positive LGBTQ plus role models on television or in pop culture. Uh, we, we weren't really there. We didn't exist. So it was very easy for many people to say we didn't exist, period. And so if you were a little LGBTQ kid, you're like, well, you know, I'm the only one. And um, and it was very hard to have a sense of self. Um, I do think today is so different um, and we are visible. And so uh, that scares some people and they want to take things back to where they were before when we were ashamed of ourselves, we were invisible. Because if we're visible, then you have to deal with our existence. And you have to say we are deserving of humanity, or you have to argue that we're not. And, th and that latter position mm -hmm. is really uncomfortable one in 2022, luckily, um, as it is more uncomfortable to do it for women or people of color. And when it, whereas at one point, it certainly was not so uncomfortable to do it for people of color, right? So things have changed, and I'm, I, I'm proof of that. And it's important that I be authentic and, 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 and out here uh, and, and visible. Uh, so people can see that, yeah, any little LGBTQ kid of color, poor or mar otherwise marginalized, if I can do it, you can do it. And that's really, 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 really important. What brings you joy, Marcus, as you navigate a world of complex geopolitics and all the other responsibilities you have? What do you do that lights you up and gives you fire? I, I My kids just give me a tremendous amount of joy. It's, you know, mm -hmm. very... We're, it's very miraculous to think what was the world when I was growing up where you really, it was hard to even be openly gay or lesbian. Uh, and it was, you know, scary. And you worried about, you know, can I do this? Will I risk my family and my friend's love and blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention having a job, et cetera. Uh, but today to, you know, being, you know, uh, an openly gay dad with a partner and, and kids and, and, uh, and one of my kids, one of my, my daughter is trans, um, None of that was imaginable that that would be able to exist when I was growing up. And the fact that it does exist today and just those it's still simple moments where we are together as a family uh, and enjoying each, each other, enjoying our lives uh, and kind of celebrating the, the miraculousness that we exist, that we are here. Um, it is it is joy that, you know, I can't even put into words. It's amazing to let them know that. Well, Marcus, I could talk to you all day, but we don't have all day. So I hope you'll come on again to keep talking about the incredible work you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Farai. That's Marcus Mabry, Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Global Programming for CNN Digital Worldwide. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sip in the Political Tea gets into President Biden's State of the Union Address and CPAC with Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th and our body politic contributor, plus senior advisor at the Lincoln Project, Tara Setmayer. There was an amount of bipartisanship written into that speech that I did not anticipate. I did not anticipate how many applause lines Biden got with Republicans as well. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is Our Body Politic contributor and editor-at-large at the 19th, Aaron Haynes. Welcome back, Aaron. 
Happy to be back where every month is Women's History Month. Indeed it is, and you are always there to cover it. We've also got resident scholar at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, Tara Setmayer. She is also a senior advisor at the Lincoln Project and a former GOP Congressional Communications Director. Tara, welcome. Thank you for having me back. So this week we're diving into President Biden's State of the Union address, CPAC, and potential Republican hopefuls in 2024. Yes, it's closer than you think. So in other words, just another light news week. And Aaron, I will hand it off and let you take it from here. Yeah, nothing much to see here. Yeah, right. Everything is happening. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Farai. Uh, Tara, thank you for being here. Let's start with you because uh, President Biden gave his uh, first State of the Union address on Tuesday night. And it is also the first State of the Union, by the way, to have two women sitting on the dais behind the president. So that was a history making moment to start off Women's History Month. But I'm wondering, what were the highlights and key takeaways for you? Uh, well, I was happy to see a semblance of just normalcy uh, back around the State of the Union. Uh, sure. I spent many of them when I worked in Capitol Hill. I've sat through seven of them as a uh, press secretary on Capitol Hill. And uh, there's always a certain amount of pomp and circumstance that those of us uh, who work in Capitol Hill love about the State of the Union. And this time around, I mean, well, for a couple of years there during the Trump era, it was there was a certain sense of tension and um, hostility during the State of the Union um, that I didn't feel this time around once President Biden started to speak. We're so tribal now and and so polarized um, in the in the political space that I was I welcomed the fact that there that there was an amount of bipartisanship written into that speech that I did not anticipate. I did not anticipate how many applause lines Biden got with Republicans as well. I thought it was a brilliant political move to include applause lines on subjects that Republicans had no choice but to cheer for. So it made the president look presidential. Um, I thought he overperformed. And the fact that he understood the political tea leaves, which are that Democrats are in a lot of trouble going into the midterms and that he needed to really shore up that center. I thought that was really smart. So the key takeaways for me were he was strong on Ukraine. Uh, strong on the issues of democracy and reinforcing the importance of America's role in defending Western democracy and why we are in this fight. He called Putin out and who the enemies are here in no uncertain terms. Um, he Some of the domestic policy issues that he focused on were um, areas that there's a lot of bipartisan consensus on in with voters in swing districts. So um, I was encouraged by it. It was a speech he needed to give. Yeah. Yeah, definitely did see a lot of bipartisanship in the chamber, particularly around uh, the, the conflict uh, in Ukraine. So many times that you saw uh, members from, from both sides standing up, applauding the president as he spoke about uh, the situation over there, spoke about uh, America's support uh, for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Uh, there was that moment with the Ukraine ambassador that, that felt very emotional uh, in the chamber. Uh, so yeah, I noticed uh, for at least a, a good part of that first hour, a lot of bipartisanship as well. But then there was all, you know, there were also those moments uh, where you had, you know, some signs of division. I'm thinking about uh, specifically uh, Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Boebert, uh, you know, heckling 
the president during his remarks. But in the State of the Union, President Biden rebuked uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Let's listen to a clip of him. And adding additional squeeze on their economy. We're providing support to the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom. Military assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance. We're giving more than a billion dollars of direct assistance to Ukraine and will continue to aid the Ukrainian people as they defend their country and help ease their suffering. Okay, Farah, so President Biden has repeatedly said that American forces are not going to engage with Russian forces in Ukraine. But the U.S. is sending 15,000 troops to Europe and may send more to work with NATO. So what are some of the political fault lines uh, within the United States government on this issue? One of the things that is really, you know, keeping me, you know, focused on on the domestic issues is, of, of course, there is the question of whether Americans will support troop actions, even if it's not directly in a war. I think Americans have many different feelings that can include support for the Ukraine and a sense of dismay over, you know, what we have to do as a geopolitical leader. But the thing I'm really keeping my eye on is the gas tank. You know, it's this is one of those times where domestic U.S. interest and geopolitical interests are inevitably entwined. And, um, you know, President Biden has really been wounded in his approval ratings by inflation, which includes the energy prices. So I'm keeping an eye on all of that. So former President Trump had very different things to say about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, If you recall, last week, Trump called Putin a genius. uh, And he doubled down on that comment at CPAC on Sunday, uh, calling Putin smart and the NATO nations the opposite of smart. So Tara, let me come to you and ask, how is the Republican Party reacting to Donald Trump's support and really gleeful praise of Vladimir Putin? it, it, it's quite astonishing to watch the 180 turn for so many in the Republican Party and particularly in right wing media in their seemingly um, inexplicable praise for an enemy of the United States. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not a good guy. And to try and convince their viewers and their constituents that somehow Vladimir Putin is someone to be admired because of his strength um, versus President Biden as someone who is weak. You know, it is it feels traitorous, in my opinion, especially since we are looking at the biggest conflict on European soil since World War Two. You've seen a strange Uh, change, though, in the beginning, before the bombs started falling and people started dying in Ukraine, there was um, much more appetite, it seemed, to play footsie with with complimenting Putin. Uh, Since we've seen the horrors of what's taken place thus far, and I suspect it will get worse, unfortunately, uh, you've seen some backtracking with that. And Republicans like Kevin McCarthy and others came into the chamber for the State of the Union wearing Ukrainian flags or colors to, to signify their support for Ukraine. So they can't have it both ways. Mm. They really can't. And Donald Trump's record with Russia is abominable. Um, they cannot whitewash history. And Tara, just wanted to follow up on what you were saying, because uh, there's been this framing that like, oh, including, a, you know, post that uh, President Trump has made on his own social media feed, like, oh, I was the guy who was good with Putin. 
And I think that that framing really is obviously self-serving, but it's really about like there's a difference between being good like a diplomat, negotiator, world leader and being good like, hey, bro, come on over and look at these secrets with me. (laughs) Right. Right. Being good with Vladimir Putin means what? Complimenting him as, uh, you know, a genius and savvy as he's invading a sovereign nation and killing innocent people, um, saying that even though Putin is, we know that he's a killer, and saying, "Well, so what? We are too in America. We're not so. We're not that much better." Standing next to him in Helsinki, giving more credibility to Vladimir Putin's word than our own intelligence services about uh, about Russia's role in in the 2016 election and interfering in our in our elections, I, it's it's really uh, pr- quite remarkable to see that. But this is also the same person who bragged about love letters between him and Kim Jong-un, who's another dictator, uh, murderous dictator, enemy of the United States and the West. So um, it's on brand for Donald Trump. What's disappointing and infuriating is that the Republican Party, which used to be the party of Reagan, the cold warriors who held up foreign policy and being tough on authoritarian regimes and illiberal um, regimes has now become more comrades with Russia than they are to their loyalty to the United States and our Constitution. And I think that they need to be called out for it and, and held responsible for it. You're listening to Sipping the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Erin Haynes, and this week we're discussing the State of the Union, CPAC, and the future of the Republican Party with Tara Setmayer, Senior Advisor of the Lincoln Project, and our host, Farai Chidea. If you're just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. A recent Washington Post ABC poll found that President Biden's approval rating had hit a new low with 37% approving of the job that he's doing. Farai, what are some of the most significant factors that are driving that rating? Well, I mean, obviously it is not a fun thing or it must not be a fun thing to be president and to read that 37 percent of people approve of the job and 55 percent disapprove. Um, I do think that there's very clearly partisanship involved. You know, Republicans disapprove at 86 percent. Democrats, 77 percent approve. And that's not shocking in today's environment. But really, it is the economy stupid. You know, it's like 75 percent of Americans are saying that the economy is negative, up from 70 percent in November. And that's an almost decade long low rating. And unemployment has dropped and there have been new jobs added, but it's really the cash crunch of inflation, which we have talked about consistently on this show. So I think that economic anxiety is really driving the bus here. Yeah. uh, uh, Tara, that same post-ABC poll that Farai just mentioned also found that if the election was held today, 49 percent of registered voters would support the Republican candidate versus 42 percent who would support Democrats. So what does that say to you about uh, what we can expect in this year's midterms? It should have a five alarm fire, raise a five alarm fire for the Democrats. The fact that traditionally Republicans have been considered better on the economy. um, And so I'm not surprised by a generic ballot uh, right now with that. It's true. It is the economy. Um, It's always going to be the driving factor because that's what impacts people's lives every single day. Most people do not wake up and say, oh, my goodness, how is our democracy under attack today? 
Most people don't think like that. They go to the grocery store or to the gas pump and realize, oh my goodness, it's costing me X amount more dollars to fill up my tank and to buy groceries. That's how people usually base their voting behavior. Am I better off than I was X amount of years ago? Those political adages remain. But it goes back to Farai's point about the State of the Union and how Republicans are using some wedge issues and some kitchen table issues to attack President Biden, whether it's fair or not, whether he actually has control over certain things or not, it doesn't matter. He's the president. He gets the blame or the credit. And the idea of energy policy now being at the forefront because gas prices are so high, that's a metric. That's a political metric that cannot be ignored. If gas prices are still creeping up to $4 a gallon when midterms, you know, people start voting for midterms, the Democrats are going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And, and Farah, I want to come to you because the other thing that happened on Tuesday night, uh, in case you missed it, watching the State of the Union was uh, there was a primary in Texas. And I'm wondering if there is anything that uh, we can glean from those tea leaves uh, of, about that Texas primary that we saw on Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, this was considered a victory for establishment Republican politicians. Um, You had Governor Greg Abbott winning his primary. And also, uh, side note, Beto O'Rourke will be the Democratic gubernatorial nominee. So we'll we'll see him coming back on stage. And George P. Bush uh, is now in a runoff against Ken Paxton, who is the Donald Trump endorsed state attorney general. So it seems to be an alignment to establishment, which you know, is is still in this era, I think, informed by culture war and informed by other tactics that the establishment uses. But it's it's that was a, a very distinct first move in the term primary season. All right. So, Tara, I wanted to get you to weigh in on this year's CPAC, which wrapped up recently, uh, because that's been a place where rising stars in the Republican Party and other presidential hopefuls kind of flex their rhetorical muscles, right? Workshop what they got. Uh, so Donald Trump won their 2024 GOP presidential nomination straw poll, but uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did come in second. So what are you keeping your eye on as politicians begin strategizing uh, to jockey in this 2024 GOP presidential field? So CPAC, as you stated, has always been a must-stop place for any presidential hopeful in the Republican Party. And uh, the fact that it's in Ron DeSantis' home state um, and DeSantis has been making moves, whether people want to admit that in his inner circle or not, he clearly has his eye on running in 2024. Um, And Donald Trump and Trump world, they're keeping a close eye on this and they're not happy. Um, And so because people are looking at Ron DeSantis as a more palatable alternative to to Donald Trump going into 2024. Um, But Donald Trump is still the titular head of the Republican Party. And you saw in that CPAC straw poll that he won by a considerable amount. But if you take Donald Trump out of the equation, Ron DeSantis is the clear favorite. So I think people need to pay attention to this dynamic. Who was missing was Mike Pence. And I recently wrote a piece for NBC Think where I said that you know, the former vice president has no chance. My cat, Tiki, has a greater chance of becoming president of the United States than Mike Pence because 
despite being so obsequious for all those years and Donald Trump's number one enabler, um, he committed the cardinal sin of actually standing up to Trump and doing his constitutional duty by certifying the election last year on January 6th. So that is that made him persona non grata. So the people who are rising stars and the number one person to pay attention to is definitely Ron DeSantis. And there were there was buzz about him during CPAC and whether he should wait his turn or whether they should back him as someone who's an alternative to Donald Trump, given all of Trump's baggage, if Republicans think they have a shot at 2024. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, you know, I think that that we are also seeing that, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis is is absolutely willing to go to this kind of culture war uh, divisive playbook that has has had some success, uh, frankly, in Republican politics in recent years. Uh, we've seen Governor DeSantis as somebody who's fought against these COVID-19 uh, restrictions, precautions. Uh, now he's signaled support for what some are calling that don't say gay bill, discouraging teaching about sexual identities in the classroom. You know, uh, the Virginia governor's race uh, certainly showed that, that um, you know, conversations around uh, culture war issues like CRT can have uh, an effect with re- Republican voters, especially those who may be looking for an alternative to the former president in 2024. 100%. CPAC is the playbook. CPAC is the playbook. Ron DeSantis is the playbook. And I really implore my Democratic friends to pay attention and have a strategy to combat it. Do not let Republicans take these issues of parental rights and, and the culture war away from Democrats and put them on the defensive. Well, Tara, we got to give you the last word because we're all out of tea for this week, if you can believe it. Uh, but thanks both of you so much for being here. Thanks, Farai. And thanks, Tara. Thank you. Thank you. That was Aaron Haynes, our body politic contributor and editor at large at the 19th, and also Tara Setmayer, resident scholar at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia and senior advisor at the Lincoln Project. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild and engineered by Harry Evans, Michael Gaylor, and Adam Ruhner. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. Listener.